Hello friends and welcome to the Alcoholic Ominous Podcast, Living Sober After Hitting Bottom. My name is Simon, I'm an alcoholic. I am five weeks sober, which, given my history with sobriety, isn't very good. I slipped, I relapsed, at some point last year. We don't know exactly when, and we don't know exactly why. I hit bottom, the jumping off point, and now I'm back on track, albeit with a lot of work to do. Alcoholics hit bottom for many reasons, feelings of shame, remorse, loneliness, hopelessness, they might lose a home, a family, their jobs, friends, the emotional suffering might be too much, but alcoholics can go on for years denying that their lives are on a downward spiral. Sometimes we're given the gift of desperation and we seek help. If not, we remain lost. And that's the title of today's podcast. Lost. Lost in Translation is a 2003 romantic comedy drama film. It stars Bill Murray as ageing actor Bob Harris, who befriends college graduate Charlotte. Bob and Charlotte are lost in many ways. On a basic level, lost in an alien Japanese culture. Equally, they're lost in their own lives and relationships. And this feeling of being lost leads to their blossoming friendship and a growing connection to one another. The Lost Boys is a 1987 American horror comedy film and it stars Jason Patrick, Corey Haim, Kiefer Sutherland. It's about two brothers who move to California and end up fighting a gang of young vampires. The title is a reference to The Lost Boys in J.M. Barry's stories about Peter Pan, who, like the vampires, never grow up. They say that a practicing alcoholic never grows up emotionally. Episode 5, Week 5 lost. It's hardly surprising that the alcoholic is lost. There are so many unanswered questions. The alcoholic might ask himself, why me? Why was I addicted to alcohol? Why am I an alcoholic? Did I catch it? Like you might catch HIV. Did I do something? Was there a time when I wasn't alcoholic? How old was I? Is it something that's self-inflicted? Why am I hooked and some people can walk away from a drink no problem? There aren't any answers to these questions, just some research. And it's flimsy, it's inconclusive. Research mentions genetic factor. The suggestion is I might have got this disease from my mum or dad, but they're not alcoholics. And it didn't skip a generation for me either. It might have skipped two generations, but I can't be sure of that. Research mentions environmental factors, so physical, cultural, demographic, economic, political, technological, etc. And that's not f- 
helping anyone. Growing up around alcohol and having an alcoholic parent probably ups the risk. But I don't have alcoholic parents. And I wouldn't say that I grew up around alcohol. Definitely I started drinking young. That was just something that teenagers did in my neighbourhood. Weekends, parties, hanging out on the park, getting into pubs as young as possible. Because that's where the fun was. But it affected me. Not necessarily those around me who were doing exactly the same thing. Mental health issues are said to increase the likelihood of alcoholism. So depression, bipolar, schizophrenia. I'm no expert here. I've definitely felt low at times, but this doesn't explain it for me. The World Health Organization recognises alcoholism as a disease. Dr. Silkworth, Silky, in the book, talks about the same thing. He talks about a manifestation of an allergy and a phenomenon of craving. And I get the allergy part. I really do. I know that I cannot consume alcohol safely. And I know that by consuming this alcohol, it develops this sort of phenomenon of craving. But why me? How did I get this disease? Because it's a f***ing horrible disease to have. People have no sympathy for alcoholics. They think we're just escaping our problems or getting high just for the sake of it. They think there's nobody to blame for our alcoholism but ourselves. They think we've made the choice in the first place and we've made a choice to keep doing it, despite knowing what will happen. And that's partly bloody true. But it's a horrible disease. It's cunning, baffling, powerful. It's the only disease that tells you that you haven't got it. And when you're in recovery, it's always in the background, waiting for you. Waiting for some person, place or thing to put you in the mood to pick up a drink. And when it's got you, it grips you. And the alcoholic is a figure of ridicule. It's funny to laugh at them. The alcoholic is a homeless person who spends their days on a park bench drinking neat spirits from a paper bag. But that's not true. Alcoholism can affect anyone, no matter what age, sex, race, religious beliefs, social standing, upbringing or profession. I know. I see these people on a regular basis. If you filled a room full of non-alcoholics, and next door to that room filled another room full of alcoholics, you would not know the difference. We're everywhere. And at first glance, we're just as f***ing normal as the rest of you. Only we've got a life-threatening disease that there is no cure for, and if we die of it, it's a slow, painful death. And as if this disease wasn't difficult enough to deal with, people are now trying to change the name of it. Alcoholism is also known as alcohol use disorder now, and it's been divided into two categories. Alcohol abuse, alcohol dependence. It's confusing, and we are lost. I need to keep things simple. I suffer from the disease of alcoholism. There are several recovery programs out there. There's only one that I've ever seen work. It wasn't created by the people that developed the name alcohol use disorder. It was developed by alcoholics.
I'm not offended by the term alcoholic. When I hear the term recovering alcoholic, it makes me smile. I'd rather be a recovering alcoholic than someone recovering from alcohol use disorder. experiences as a practicing alcoholic. I've heard a lot of people say that they were born an alcoholic and it only took one drink to trigger that alcoholism. I think I put myself in that category. Alcohol always did something for me that it didn't do to my friends. I remember at 17 and we would take it in turns to drive to the pub, you know, have a designated driver. When it was my turn to drive, it hurt. I remember walking to a party once with some cans of expensive lager and I dropped them, piercing all of the cans, all of them. How unlucky can you get? I'd lost alcohol and it was going to ruin my evening and it did. Before long, I was living for the weekend, Friday night, Saturday night, football on Sunday afternoon. All opportunities to have a good drink. Thursday night was lads night. I remember at 21, we'd been invited to a party in a, in a really grand house, really big house. I'm not sure why we were invited. And I remember being happy drunk, lying on the floor, looking up at a balcony and thinking, this is the best feeling ever. Life is never going to be this good again. I've had a drink, got a wonderful girlfriend, got a big group of friends and I'm at a party. Drinking was fun and I think everybody goes through that phase. Not so long after this party I realised that alcohol was affecting me physically. There were two situations that stand out in my mind. The first one was someone passing me a teacup and saucer. I couldn't hold it properly. It rattled. I was shaking, physically shaking. The second one was at work and it was a similar situation. It was my turn to buy the drinks, the coffees, and I couldn't physically return the coffees to the desk because I was shaking. So I had to pour some out. Alcohol was doing something to me physically and mentally, but I wasn't that worried. I just told myself I'd have to be a little bit more careful. And for the best part of 16 years, I avoided drinking tea out of a cup and saucer. It wasn't the biggest of sacrifices. But the shakes, the tremors, was something that I was very much aware of at the age of 22 or 23. And I knew that these shakes were a symptom of alcohol withdrawal. My body had got used to the presence of alcohol. And when it wasn't there, I was shaking sometimes. Other stuff was happening in my life at this age. I'd been stabbed in the abdomen. I was a victim. I'm not a violent person. In the same attack, I'd had a glass smashed in my face. I was scarred. These scars look quite distinguished now, but back then they were still quite raw and I'd hide my face quite a bit. I was forced to leave the family home because I was difficult to live with. I was in a bad relationship, but we moved into a flat together. Friends were pairing up and growing up and getting careers, developing. And here's me, one of the lost boys not wanting to grow up, wanting to continue in the way I had done since I first found alcohol. 
I held down an office job and it paid my way, but you could never call me successful. I was full of jealousy, resentment, anger, regret, and it hurt. I actually remember making a decision to drink every night. I told myself this was just temporary. I could drink on those feelings and they would go away. And the really stupid thing, had I not found alcohol and used alcohol, I don't know what I would have done. I probably would have been worse off. Initially, alcohol works, but it stops working. There's a part in the big book, in the chapter more about alcoholism, and it says, though there is no way of proving it, we believe that early in our drinking careers, most of us could have stopped drinking. But the difficulty is that few alcoholics have enough desire to stop while there is yet time. We have heard of a few instances where people who show definite signs of alcoholism were able to stop for a long period because of an overpowering desire to do so. The suggestion is that there's a point of no return, a point where I could have stopped drinking for a long period of time. And I don't know about that. Maybe at some point in my late teens, but by my very early 20s, I was lost. The time I spent at home with my girlfriend was time spent arguing and drinking. She drank too, but not quite as excessively as I did. And the times I spent socialising with friends was time spent drinking in pubs and clubs. This was me at my happiest. This was me with a drink in my hand, buying other people drinks, joking, laughing, dancing. Every outing was an adventure. Where would we go? What would we do? What would we drink? What sort of a state would we get into? Conversation was of football, cricket, boxing, women and beer wounds. And I'm covered in beer wounds. My favourite beer wound comes from the time that I fell over a garden wall. I grazed my head, my forehead, quite badly. I really should have gone to accident and emergency because it was clearly bleeding. But I needed my bed. So I fell asleep with my grazed, bleeding forehead, face down on the pillow. When I eventually woke up, a scab had developed on the other side of the pillowcase. Effectively, I had a pillow glued to my head. And I couldn't just rip it off. One, it would have been painful and two, it would have made the scab worse. I walked around with a pillow stuck to my face for several hours, and then I decided to watch some DVDs in the hope that the scab would eventually fall off by itself. Having a pillowcase attached to your forehead prevents you from going to the shop and purchasing alcohol, and I felt like John Hurt portraying John Merrick in The Elephant Man. I'm not an animal. I had to eventually rip the pillow off my forehead. It left a nasty wound. Fortunately, rock band Oasis, Noel and Liam Gallagher, had entered the music scene by this point. I was able to comb my fringe forward over the wound, looking like an Oasis fan, similar to the mop tops that the Beatles used to have. Friends and colleagues were very impressed at my daring new haircut. Some even invited me to different nightclubs. I accepted their offer and got wasted. 
these different nightclubs proved to be much cheaper than the ones I had been frequenting. So it's not all bad. Cigarettes and alcohol. Just gotta roll with it. Supersonic. Resentment. And remember, resentment is the number one killer of alcoholics. Two words. Two f***ing words. School mums. Mums with kids in school. You disappoint me. I wanted something different from you. I wanted fun, rock and roll, cheeky flirtation. A bit of banter at the school gates. I'm a single dad for half of my life. You lot could have made my school run enjoyable, interesting, entertaining. You've all just been shit. You women liberated yourselves years ago. And look what you did. Look what you've become. Hiking boots, waterproofs, men's haircuts, Slimming World, Radio 2, Waitrose, Tax Efficient Isis, Voting Conservative, Drab and Dowdy, Tupperware and Salad. It's like watching 1984 again. That was John Hurt too. Big Brother is not always watching. Let yourselves go, let your hair down and be fun for once. As young girls you skipped around the playground, chasing boys and wanting to have fun. And then you grew up and it was all about how cool you were and how good you looked and Duran Duran. And then you grow up again and it's all about hen nights and girl power and making a noise. And from that point to this, 1984, George Orwell. On my first day of infant school, I remember being stood in the playground, scared. And it was you girls that came forward, held my hand and welcomed me. You shared your crisps. You tried to tie my hair in plaits and helped me tie my shoelaces. Those days are gone. I see you dancing awkwardly at children's parties, handing out the cheese sandwiches and pouring juice. I see you at the school gates talking about the next 10k run you're going to do and how John Lewis clearance isn't as good as it used to be. But there's no magic anymore. The magic's gone and it's been replaced with five portions of fruit and vegetables every day, high visibility clothing, camping checklists, master chef, and homemade dog treats. You've let me down, and you've excluded me. I can never be in your gang. Sure, some of the other dads make it into the gang. They're probably vegans. You've probably got ices in common with them. Maybe you've got boot space in the back of your Volvo for that kind of a man. But it's not me. It's not me, is it? So when schools send home letters to parents telling us there's a disco night or a bingo night, there are two reasons why I'm not going. Number one, school mums. Number two, got no one to go with. But I know what you're thinking. You're thinking that this level of exclusion is similar to that experienced by the great Rosa Parks. A 
and like Rosa Parks, I will become an international icon of resistance to school mums. And I will not let this resentment kill me today. To be honest though, it might just be the school mums in my neck of the woods. We're a bit middle class. The new waitrose in the pedestrian area doesn't help. The school mums have married nerdy types. Wealthy, but dull. I'm not sure that what they've become is what they intended to become. I think it's time to have a quick look in the book. Now we left Bill having found some sort of a higher power and realising that helping other alcoholics would be beneficial to him. And on page 15 he writes, My wife and I abandon ourselves with enthusiasm to the idea of helping other alcoholics to a solution of their problems. My wife and I. He's dragged his wife, Lois W, on this journey with him. How the f*** has he managed to do that? They don't make him like they used to, Mrs. Waitrose. Anyway, he continues. I was not too well at the time, and I was plagued by waves of self-pity and resentment. This sometimes nearly drove me back to drink. But soon I found that when all other measures failed, work with another alcoholic would save the day. Many times I have gone to my old hospital in despair. On talking to a man there, I would be amazingly lifted up and set on my feet. It is a design for living that works in rough going. Alright Bill, we get the message. Bill and Lois continue. We commence to make many fast friends and a fellowship has grown up among us of which it is a wonderful thing to feel a part. What Bill's doing here is teeing us up for chapter 2, there is a solution, because now we want to know the solution. But before we get to the solution, Bill's making us read some more. The joy of living we really have, even under pressure and difficulty. I have seen hundreds of families set their feet in the path that really goes somewhere. I've seen the most impossible domestic situations righted, feuds and bitterness, all sorts wiped out. I have seen men come out of asylums and resume a vital place in the lives of their families and communities. Business and professional men have regained their standing. There is scarcely any form of trouble and misery which has not been overcome among us. Come on Bill, tell us the solution. An alcoholic in his cups is an unlovely creature. Our struggles with them are variously strenuous, comic and tragic. One poor chap committed suicide in my home. He could not or would not see our way of life. Jesus, one poor chap committed suicide in my home. F***ing hell. I hope Lois wasn't there. There is, however, a vast amount of fun about it all. I suppose some would be shocked at our seeming worldliness and levity. But just underneath, there is deadly earnestness. Faith has to work 24 hours a day, in and through us, or we perish. 
Most of us feel we need look no further for utopia. We have it, right with us, here and now. Each day, my friend's simple talk in our kitchen multiplies itself in a widening circle of peace on earth and goodwill to all men. And that's the end of chapter one. I have no idea how this is going to stop me from drinking. He's not even mentioned putting the drink down. Surely that's the first thing we need to do, put the bloody drink down. So we're left wanting to read chapter two entitled, There is a Solution. What is that solution? How can I overcome a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body, alcoholism? Bill and Lois, bless them, are out helping other alcoholics. But how? What is the solution? For f**k's sake, tell me the solution. Put it on a pamphlet. My week in sobriety. This week I have been guilty of procrastination. This doesn't mean I've done anything illegal. Procrastination means the action of delaying or postponing something. Dithering, stalling, hesitation. In fact, it's not an action at all. It's an inaction, a non-action. There are no prizes for this inactivity but I'm bloody good at it. If there are important decisions to be made and you want someone that won't make those decisions and will not take action, I'm your man. I don't want to have to deal with it, I'd rather procrastinate. But one thing is for certain, I will tell you this, when the shit hits the fan, when the chips are down, when things get serious, I'm going to procrastinate. It's an alcoholic trait. I've got an excuse. I've got an illness. But honestly, that's just not good enough. My procrastination has landed me in so much trouble and I have things to do. Actually, doing this podcast is another excuse to procrastinate and to avoid doing the things that I need to do. And if I don't do these things that I need to do, it will hit the fan. I'm obviously no stranger to hitting the fan. But if you give me an option to do the things that I need to do that will get me out of this shit, or to sit here like a fool talking about school mums guess which one I'm doing I'm still a drunk I'm still a f***ing drunk procrastination is sloth my default mode is lazy mode throughout the years drinking has affected my energy levels I have been tired and incapable And even with a few weeks of sobriety under my belt, I am still tired and incapable and lazy. This must change. I bumped into an old friend this week. I say old. She's both old and a friend. She's the wife of a guy who was instrumental in my recovery first time out. She was shocked to see me. Probably thought I was dead. Her husband died three years ago and not only was he instrumental in my recovery, he was instrumental in hundreds of people's recovery. He threw his life into AA. 
very well respected guy. I have a picture, a photograph of him in one of my cupboards at home. I don't know why he's in a cupboard. I probably couldn't look at him while I was on Mission Impossible. I looked her in the face and I just said, you know what? I f***ed up. I messed up. And I'm back. For good. She's a recovering alcoholic. She's got decades of sobriety behind her. And she's anything but the stereotypical alcoholic. She's practically a saint. She told me that her husband loved me. And that he would be so happy to see me in the rooms again. I loved him. He once gave me 50p and told me that if I ever had the thought of picking up a drink again, I was to ring him. I carried that 50p in my wallet for years. I'd give so much to be able to sit down with him again and just chat. He'd know what to say. He'd have the right advice. I can guess what he'd say. Something about being a gentleman. A gentle man. Something about doing things for others. And definitely something about this being a very simple program. He had 25 years of sobriety before he passed away. Sober, well respected. AA can be a bit tribal, but on the day of his funeral, all of the tribes came together. I don't think I'll ever meet anyone that got it as much as he did. He made his living out of his creativity, and he was successful. And when he wasn't making a living, he was saving lives. Blokes like me, hopeless alcoholics. I can only imagine how many years of sobriety that man has generated. How many men aren't living in fear and misery as a result of him. And he was so humble, like he was the least important person in the room. And for my mind, if there's a chapter in the book called There Is A Solution, it should have his face printed all over it. His wife made me do the washing up. It made me feel humble. And that felt good. Some of the magic that I felt first time around and second time around is coming back. I've forgotten so much. I've forgotten so much of this very simple program of recovery. But I'm an alcoholic. And we alcoholics can take something very simple and make it very complicated. But thank God we've kept with what we know. Twelve steps, twelve traditions, a fellowship, and taking it one day at a time. One book, a higher power of our own understanding, and helping the alcoholic who still suffers. To the people that have no idea what I'm talking about, and why would you? This is important stuff. It's the difference between life or death. And to those of you that know exactly what I'm talking about, thank you. I am grateful. And I am humbled. I haven't wanted or needed a drink. And that suits me just fine. Life's still difficult. And I have to live life on life's terms. In terms of my sobriety, I need to give time time. I sit here just a few weeks sober, wanting to be four years sober. But I can't. But I'm lucky that I have a lot of experience. I know what's coming. I know what I've got to do. I see plenty of newcomers. And they have more fear than I do. Because they don't. What's going through their minds is what 
went through my mind years and years ago. It's the same old questions. How can I live sober? How will I get through the day? What am I going to do at Christmas? Am I going to be boring and glum for the rest of my life? Will it be painful? How will I cope with my alcoholic head? But it takes a lot of courage to get yourself into recovery. I was lucky I was an ugly old bloke. It breaks my heart sometimes when I see a young woman enter the rooms in so much pain. You smile because you know their lives will get better if they just stick with it. Maybe I'm a male chauvinist pig or whatever, but I don't like the thought of women having to go through what I went through. It would break my heart if my daughters had to go through practicing alcoholism. To have to live like that, to have to hit bottom before you find recovery. Some of the strongest women I know are recovering alcoholics. But it's not just the recovery that's made them strong. I've said it before, religion is for people that are afraid of going to hell. Spirituality is for people that have been there. So you can keep your Cardassians, your X-Factor starlets, your reality show bitches and your footballers wives. I know better. And to women in recovery everywhere, I salute you. Apologies. This is the point of the show where I apologise for all the sh** that I have said and done. I haven't got many apologies to make this week, and this suggests to me that I'm becoming a better person. School mums, I'm sorry. We just turned out differently. You chose a path of stability and control. I chose something very different. I chose out of control. It's hardly surprising that we don't mix. And to the bloke that was instrumental in saving my life years ago, I'm back. I know you don't want to hear an apology, you just want me to be okay. But I'm back. Two things that the alcoholic early in recovery always says. I know. And I'm fine. I know. And I'm fine. Get in touch with me. You can email alcoholicominous at gmail.com or contact me anonymously via the website alcoholicominous.com. Your correspondence has been wonderful. From words of wisdom and support to cries for help. From the non-alcoholic to the alcoholic that still suffers. I really appreciate you getting in touch and letting me know you're listening. Don't be a stranger. Be a part of. Don't be a part from. I wish to remind you that whatever I have said in this podcast expresses my own individual opinion as of today and up until this moment. I do not speak for AA and you are free to agree or disagree if you see fit. In fact, it is suggested that you pay no attention to anything that is not in the AA big book. If you don't have a big book, why the f*** did that just be? If you don't have a big book, it's time you bought one. 
Read it, study it, live with it, loan it, scatter it and learn from it. If you are struggling with alcoholism, pick up the phone. Get yourself to a meeting and tell the first person you see you don't know what the f*** you're doing. It's beeping too much. I don't feel I can express myself properly because that thing's beeping every time I... Everyone else's podcast will answer swear. Let's be careful out there.